Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday the 30th of the 4th. Thank God it's Friday, Michael. I say as if I wasn't a man for whom the days have always been meaningless. How have you been? Oh, I've been tremendous, Gary. It's just one laugh factory. Tomorrow's summer. For anybody who was wondering what summer looked like, I don't know if it was right. You got we had hail and snow and rain and gale force winds today. I'm glad that tomorrow was summer and that'll all go away. So, Michael, I just wanted to start uh, with just a little present for you, just for you, not the listener, for you. Okay. It's um, it's it's the best headline I've seen in Ireland for. God knows how long. It's from a piece by Eilish O'Regan in The Independent, but I will preface this by saying that writers do not choose their headlines, so this is not Eilish's fault. But it's all about uh, the 14-day instant rate of COVID-19 around the country, Michael. But this is the headline. Several counties still have a higher virus incident rate than the national average. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just brilliant. <laughs> yes, I thought you'd like that one. Several counties, it's higher than the national average. Well, that is, um, I, I don't know what to respond to that. I suppose um, it's possible. I mean, you, that every county in the country could have the same as the national average. That would be a surprise. <laughs> I mean, I'm used to people getting the mean and the median mixed up. But this is legitimately the first time I've seen a newspaper apparently forget how an average is calculated. If you have ever attempted to calculate the average and all of the numbers that you've put in have come out below the average, you may want to call an ambulance. You may be having a stroke. Or you may just be a, a statistician. I, 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 if you really wanted to work hard, Gary, you could make, we could make a story out of this by, again, going after the meta story, which is... In a desperate attempt to make sure that every story is a bad story and a scary story and oh, it's not over yet. You want to mind out? There's still danger lurking in the trees. Okay, the national average is what it is, but there's places where the average is higher than the national average. They're falling. They're falling like leaves in winter in Cavan and Donegal. I like it because it reads like a joke headline designed to shock people it honestly it could be it could be from the onion or the or waterford whispers oh yeah it's, it's a piss take of a fear-mongering headline yeah except since it appeared in the independent was it the independent yes we have to assume that it wasn't meant to be independent not known for their sense of humor i don't know you never know for all we i i, I think i might have mentioned before there's a fabulous book that anybody out there if they can get hold of they should read just for its insights into politics and in journalism, even though it was written talking about a period somewhere between 100 and years ago and 60 years ago by Claude Colbert. And he was briefly, he says, whether this is true or not, we don't know. He was, br he, he was briefly in the foreign uh, section of the London Times when he was sort of being doing his apprenticeship. He, and there was a <laughs> there was a there was a, a a kind of a lottery or a pool every year every week uh, amongst the juniors who used to do sub editing and therefore write the the headlines to see who could write the most boring headline of the week that got published wasn't just enough to win to write a, a really good uh, boring headline it had to be published he says although there is apparently no record of this that could be found, that he only ever won it once with a headline, which was, Small Earthquake in Chile, Not Many Dead. And, which is a, a, an article of joy from sub-editor's point of view. So maybe, for all we know in The Independent, there is a bit of a, a, a pool going on amongst journalists and sub-editors to see the most ridiculous headline that can get published. And maybe somebody's just won the jackpot. With this one, I would like to think that that's what's happening here. In my little way, I think that would make it an even better story. But even if it's not, it's still it's still something to bring a smile to your face, as I say, on what has been a chilly and wintry day. Yes, I mean, it was a good headline. It's no headless body in topless bar, but it's pretty good. So I, that, thank you, Gary, for that. That was good. I enjoyed that, yeah. So from one amusing headline to another... It's about the examiner, and you know, Michael, I love to bring up the examiner at all points because... I think, Gary, anybody who's digested the examiner brings it up pretty quickly afterwards. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> comedy, Gary, comedy. Sensible chuckle. 
This is from uh, Elaine Loughlin, her take on the political week. It's uh, titled Young Fine Gael is Male, Stale and Increasingly Right-Wing. And I've got to open this by congratulating the O'Connell family on realising that if they publish things in The Independent that have been written by someone married to a member of the O'Connell family, it will look like they planted it. (laughs) And that, I think, is a sign that everyone here is growing as people, Michael. Yeah, we're all getting getting better. We're all, we're all growing. This is wonderful. Because it's one of those, it's, it's a pure opinion piece from someone whose profession is giving their opinion on politics. But it's totally devoid of self-awareness to an almost comical extent. So basically what caused this is Young Fine Gael had um, their elections in the last while. You've got new members of the executive board. Some of the people who ended up on that executive board would be in the more conservative wing of Young Fine Gael and would be people that were not liked by certain people on the more progressive wing of Fine Gael itself. Yeah, yeah. So what this is, is, is it's a complaint from the examiner that, uh, you know, an, in- an increasing chunk of its youth organization is moving towards more right-wing anti-abortion and anti-immigration standpoint. Oh, scary. It says that Young Finnegan was established by Gareth Fitzgerald in 1977 as a way of modernizing the party by bringing in a younger generation. Immediately after that, it quotes an unnamed liberal member of either Young Fine Gael or Fine Gael, not clear, saying Gareth would be horrified with what Young Fine Gael have become. Well, Gareth did do horrified pretty well. I mean, Gareth was regularly horrified. But anyway, speaking of somebody who had to live through Gareth as a theatre, we were all pretty horrified. Then they say that only three of the ten people elected were women. Another anonymous quote saying they're not drawing young women in because it's toxic. Like three out of ten is actually... Pretty solid because you've got it's a voting system, Michael. You just can't put them there. Yeah, I mean, that's fundamentally flawed. If that's the result, uh, you have to go back and say, "Well, there's something wrong with the system, Gary." The system is that's where we get the word "system" systemic from. Systemic sexism, systemic racism. Young Fine Gael President Arto Mahoney, who took office on Saturday, confidently spins the line that the autonomous youth wing is a broad and welcoming church. But he voted no in the abortion referendum. What's wonderful about that sentence is the conjunction. But he says, blah, blah, blah. But he voted no in the abortion referendum. There is actually no, it's a non sequitur, isn't it? There is actually no logical connection. There's no connection between those two things. But it's presented as if there is some kind of logical nexus between this and this. And that means that the, f- the first part of the sentence can't be true. Yeah, you see, Michael, you're saying that coming from your position, but I don't think you're properly considering where the examiner sits on this. So they say they're open, but what sort of open and broad and welcoming church would have a member or a president who an examiner reporter would disagree with? Groups. You know, you, you have a broad and welcoming groups only include people that you agree with. I like, I like to imagine as they wrote that, there was like a brief spark of neuron activity, but then just <laughs> faded back into the darkness. Well, you can always hope, Gary. Maybe a pause where they just looked at what they had written and went, am I, am I the problem here? <laughs> no, no, now you're going too far. The brief spark I'm willing to concede might have happened. The question, am I the problem here? No, no, no. That's way too far down the line of consciousness. They do have some fun quotes from Art O'Mahony. You had to deny that he, uh, actually, he neither confirmed nor denied. He said he had no recollection. There was a pro-life dating uh, social media page, a Facebook page that they reference, which was set up after the referendum and was a joke. It was very clearly a joke. I somehow got invited to it, but it was just a joke. People taking the piss. And they say that uh, O'Mahony said, we'll breed like rabbits until we've the numbers to bring back the eighth. Which Arth very, very wisely said, I have no recollection of ever saying that. <laughs> well, more to the point that uh, if he, he's no recollection of saying it, but there's no screenshot in existence of it either. Then they go on to say that there's a growing conservative group within Young Fine Gael, Michael, saying that one member used his Twitter profile, and then says bio in brackets for some reason, to let followers know that he was a Catholic and a Christian Democrat. Oh my God. 
the horror, the humanity. I'll tell you though, seriously, I have wondered at times if somebody mightn't dob Finnegalian with the European People's Party. Young Finnegalian might be horrified to discover that the European People's Party is made up of precisely that Christian Democrats, many of whom are in fact Catholics. If you went over to Germany, for example, Europe's largest Christian Democratic Party, you would discover they are called the Christian Democrats. And in fact, are in, if they were Bavaria, the Christian Social Union, and in fact, many of them are Catholics. And the same would be said with Spain or Italy or lots of other places. Um, I don't quite know if Finnegan are up to that kind of discovery, because there's one thing for certain, Gary, they're not leaving that group, even if they might be more at home with the Liberals, where Fianna Fáil, I, how Fianna Fáil fit in with the Liberals, that is one of the great mysteries of life, well, small mysteries of life. Finnegan might be better off there, intellectually or ideologically, but that would mean that they'd never be able to have those lovely photographs of the leader of Fine Gael with the Chancellor of Germany and the Prime Minister of France and Prime Minister of Spain at these lovely big dinners where all the important people in Europe go. Liberals don't get to go to those places. The article, by the way, Michael, then goes on to say that the fact that Art O'Mahony ran unopposed shows that the Conservative side of young Fine Gael outnumbers the Liberal and the fight has gone out of the Liberal side of the organisation because they know there is no point. Which is good, because maybe this year we won't have to send a legal threat to one of their members of their executive. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, no, it's, it's been two years since we last had to send a legal threat to a member of the young Finnegale executive. God, you got into a knife fight quickly, didn't you? <laughs> I hadn't expected that to go there. I'm just bringing it up for no clear reason. I, indeed. I appreciate that. It is a, it's, it's, um, it's a curious piece. There appear to be those within Young Fine Gael for whom equality is not a priority. Last year, one female member of a private Young Fine Gael online forum raised concerns that younger people are now turning to Sinn Féin and said the organisation needed to work on recruitment. But she then added, Michael, We are focusing too much on equality and diversity. It's time we started talking about issues that really matter to people, especially the young generation including the cost of living, young people in agriculture, and insurance costs. She's clearly a monster. A political party, Michael, seeking to speak to people and improve their lives through policy. No, no, no. She's a monster. She's a monster. No, just dissing diversity and equality like that. Also, sorry, just before you go on, Gary, the idea that there's a bunch of young people out there and they're sitting trying to make it their make the decision about their political futures and they're going, Fine Gael, Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin, Fine Gael. Hmm, which will I go to? Sinn Féin, Fine I'm finding it hard to imagine who that person is, Gary. Anyway, sorry I interrupted you. No, no, you didn't, Michael. That's the nature of a conversation. You are a valued and equal member of it. And anyway, if, I, if you do ever cut me off, I just edit you out anyway, so... <laughs> Yeah, go on, Gary, what? <laughs> then, of course, they bring up the fact that young, the young Killian Foley-Walsh went over to America, went to a Young America's Foundation conference in Washington, which, 2019, they're really not letting that one go. Also, I mean, I don't want to criticise the poetry of the piece more than the content, but lads, come on. Male and stale. Very male and very stale. Talk about embracing the cliché. That has been around the block so many fucking times at this stage, lads. Try and, you're, you're writing a piece, try and write a piece. Don't just get out your, thes your thesaurus of political cliche and throw it, a, throw it at a word processor. And also, they're, they're is there the objection that Fine Gael is, young Fine Gael is in fact not a wide, open, uh, diverse Catholic with a small C organisation? Because if that's what they're complaining about, she it seems to be complaining that there are people in Young Finnegale who are different to her, which, and I hate to break it to the individual, but that's what it means if you have an organisation which is a broad church with different and varying opinions and a diversity of attitudes and beliefs. That's what happens. You'll get people who are not like you. Michael, you say that, but you are on an obscure podcast 
and this is the deputy political editor of the Irish Examiner, a position which this woman would have had to collect dozens, if not hundreds, of serial top boxes to acquire. Uh, yes. Although I think you can probably use your Tesco value points now as well. No, she would have had to get those cereal box tops and she would have had to stop herself from getting the smaller toys. So it was a great deal of self-control to get her to this position where she can write this. This is true. And one day, maybe, fingers crossed, one day she can grow up and she can become an advisor to a minister or a press officer for a political party. And go off and have a real job with real money. Wouldn't that be great? You could advise Simon Harris on TikTok. <laughs> Advice which would take the form of Simon. Don't do TikTok. So that is that is the, the Irish Examiner. For those who, who aren't aware, and this comes up every now and then, about why I dislike the Irish Examiner so much, it partially relates to Young Fine Gael. The conference that they mention in this we brought Killian over to America for that conference. We brought over a number of people. We 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 mean the Edmund Burke Institute, not... And we get over there, and then we start getting questions from Hugh O'Connell, and then suddenly people are being referred to as akin to mass murderers, and MEPs are getting involved, and it's, it's just gone to a total shit show. And that had quite a chilling effect the next year when we tried to get people to go, because... It might shock you, but looking back at the previous year and seeing the national scandal uh, that going had become, politically interested people tended to view that as a sort of a, shall we say, a disincentive. Do you know what was the... Uh, what, there are many odd things about that, I mean, other than the proof that empty vessels make most noise when it came to some of the people that were making comments about it from with their, within the same party as Killian. And other than the fact that it also displayed an incredible lack of solidarity or fraternal uh, association within that political party. The thing I thought was really curious was there were other people who went on that trip, Gary, who were from parties that we would normally consider to be, shall we, to the left of Fine Gael, who didn't seem to have a problem with this. Yeah, I think the difference there, Michael, is that you didn't have cohorts of those parties who were looking for a reason to try and bring down someone else in the party. But also, it's not uh, bringing down people in a political party. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. That's what political parties do. But this was done in a nasty, underhand. And it, talk about you know, one of the big things the progressives love to talk about is punching down and punching up, isn't it? It's a big thing, isn't it? You should always punch up. You should never punch down. It's all about power and privilege. People, you should always attack those who have more power and more privilege than you if you are in a position. But this was a classic example of people who are, who had power, who had privilege, who had access, and punching down, and punching down with great relish and great vigour, and with an, in a nasty, deceitful, and a deliberately, one had to feel at a certain point, deliberately uh, dissembling kind of way. The, 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 the level of commentary on it was really unpleasant. Didn't reflect well on the people involved at all. No, and since then I've taken a, what could be described in broad strokes, I've adopted a policy of, well, the examiner can go fuck itself, can't it? And it does. Yeah, it does make some of the media outreach slightly awkward. <laughs> well, yeah. It swings and roundabouts. On other news that annoyed, I would imagine, people like Elaine quite a lot, but was also quite funny to see, Michael Collins' TD came out and said that we have got to expand the recipients of the television license. And the people he chose, he gave some examples of how it needed to be broadened, but he chose two examples of the sort of organisations that definitely should get it. One being Virgin Media, and one being Gripped. And Michael, I, I heard this happen, and I immediately thought to myself, this is going to be a learning experience for so many people. Yeah. Because I don't know, Michael, you'll sometimes hear people complain about their money going to RTE and then RTE producing certain programs which they feel are biased against them or have a particular political slant. And the basic response I've seen those people get was, you know, well, suck it up. This is what needs to happen. But people didn't seem to take the idea of gripped getting their money terribly well. Certain segments of people, almost like the other people, were always right. It's tough, isn't it? Also, he, he he made the thing unnecessarily complicated by including the Virgin Media bit, because 
obviously there are many people who think that would be a very sensible thing to do. For example, I imagine certain people in Virgin Media might think it was an excellent idea. But how do you how do you report on it positively about that, but then just diss the gripped bit completely? That was a, that was a bit unfair of him to make it more complicated than it need be. But I, I think what we're going to see here, Michael, is a lot of more progressive people who've heard this news suddenly realising that there is a real argument to be made that you shouldn't be forced to fund material you find ideologically offensive. Do you think? think somebody's going to find their way to the end of that particular logical sentence? No. Having said that, Michael, I mean, my stance on this has always been that Grip should refuse any state funding it is offered. But I have a feeling that if the state funding could be transformed in some way to me buying a very nice boat... I might have to reconsider my views on that or giving myself an incredible wage and then hiring 10 lower paid people to do my job so I can say that I literally do the work of 10 men. Well, that's always the dream, isn't it? I mean, it's not only the dream, it's the organisational theory that motivates RTE. This is true. Along with pretty decent pension package. I mean, there are many advantages to it. I can only hope that they move on this innovative new area. <laughs> Yeah, this was. I think this is one of those ideas that's going to be filed deep in the back of the, deep in the back of the new ideas box. Well, actually, it was when they they've talked about broadening this before, so that other places, other entities, other than RTE could apply for funding from the television license. And I think there is a strong argument that if they do that and they open it to media applicants, Gript should apply for two reasons. One, it'll be hilarious, particularly because. They'll then have to look at it and go, well, they're technically media. We kind of need to give it to them. And two, Michael, the money is being taken already. And if we don't take it, RTE will take it. That is true. It's like a vegetarian who will eat steak if someone else orders it for them. It's not their fault then. I think that's the kind of vegetarian, Gary, who you call not a vegetarian. No, they're very vegetarian. Until it's in their advantage not to be. And I think that's the stance we should have towards license fees. They're terrible until they enrich me. In which case, it shouldn't happen, but I'll absolutely take it. Yeah, I think that's like a bit of vegetarian that I remember. That I, I met at a party many years ago. And we started chatting and she said something which slightly confused me. And I said, I'm sorry. She said, oh, well, I eat meat. I, I eat fish and chicken. But I'm basically a vegetarian. Okay, yeah, yeah. So you're... You're basically not a vegetarian, but you like to say that at parties. Yeah, I I suppose what Grip could do is apply for the money, get the money, and then give it to some deserving charity. I can think of one or two. I can think of one in particular, Gary, all right? No, and, I, and, I, and I think you could guess who I'm thinking of. Amnesty International. You see, that was my number two choice. And I mean my number two choice. More comedy. I saw people coming out and saying that if Grip gets stay funding, uh, if, if they are able to take part of your license fee, it would be a moral imperative to refuse to pay the license. That actually, that is, I, I see your point where you're saying earlier now, it is kind of driving them into the logical conclusion that a lot of other people have been feeling about RTE but have not been taken seriously because they were coming from a different moral position. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of fun, all right. If they're getting the money, well, then it would be wrong because they have wrong think. And they have wrong speak, so we can't, we can't be subsidising that. No, I mean, you can subsidise the right ideological propaganda, but not the wrong ideological propaganda. That, by its very definition, Michael, is wrong. So, what we're saying is that funding gripped could actually be a clever wedge which would ultimately lead to the abandonment of the licence fee. And therefore, gripped should take that money. They should take it and take it with two hands. Come back, ask for more. More, please. Like a better dressed Oliver Twist. Well, marginally. I've seen the suits. It's been a hard year. It's always a hard year, Gary. The Bar Council of Ireland, Michael. The Bar Council of Ireland has come out and done what the Irish government has been unable to do and said, China, maybe you want to stop doing that. So what's happened here is China started sanctioning barristers. Now, why they did this was those barristers were involved in putting together a um, an analysis of what is happening to the Uyghur population in Xinjiang. 
and whether yeah. or not it met the definition of genocide. China responded to this by sanctioning the barristers involved by name, individual targeting of barristers. So because of that, a couple of the professional bodies of barristers and various legal advocates in Ireland and England have come out and said that basically that's ridiculous. These are barristers, they work with clients, they cannot be blamed for this. And they put, shall we say, significantly more than the Irish government has been willing to say about China. Well, Gary, you have to think about, there is something deeply disquieting, concerning about a world superpower. And let's say we know that we had a brief period where everybody liked to say the United States was the world's only superpower. I think that time is, if not quite past, it's certainly nearly past in China's has all the looks of a superpower, is actually naming individual people. They're not sort of referring to groups or to agitators or to organisations or even to states or nations. Individual people. I find that scary. I'll tell you, Gary, in the very unlikely circumstances that somebody, well, I was going to say the very unlikely circumstances that somebody in Beijing was listening to this, there is also part of, a small part of my brain which thinks that there's somebody in Beijing listening to everything. So, I don't know. I, I would not be happy if my name was to appear in some gazette published out of Hong Kong of people opposed to the advancement of the great project of the liberation of the people, the Chinese people. I would feel uncomfortable with that. It makes you feel any better. They also sanctioned the chambers that those barristers were members of. Doesn't make me feel massively better, no. Well, at least it wasn't just them. Now it's them and about a hundred other people. That's that is that's just that's the kind of thing that governments shouldn't be doing. <laughs> really is. There was an article I published on Gripped, say a year and a half ago, which was not terribly positive towards China, and it got flagged to me that that article was being discussed in a Chinese paper in I think Hong Kong. So. The Chinese pay quite a lot of attention to how people are talking about them if they're pulling grip articles for discussion on the other side of the world. On one hand, I'm not surprised they did this because these barristers, when they completed their work, came back and said that there is a credible case to be made that China inside Xinjiang is engaging in genocide. And these, this was a legal opinion. So even though it was halfway around the world and it was in Britain, China are not going to let it stand because they put considerable effort into saying what is happening in Xinjiang is fine. They've the highlight, by the way, of the Chinese propaganda uh, in relation to Xinjiang has been that the Chinese have basically remade the sound of music, but based in Xinjiang. And also in this case, the Nazis are the good guys. Yeah, they're just helping. Much like they helped in Tibet. I mean, if you, actually, a lot of the propaganda has very similar kind of music to it. That, you know, Tibet was, what was it? It was a savage medieval autocracy, a monarchy which was grinding the poor and exploiting the people and was holding back progress. And all that they were doing was they were going to liberate the people and give them choices and possibilities that nobody could. So we know, for example, Uyghur women like the Tibetans, are being liberated by the modernising influence of the party. So, by the way, if anyone th thinks I'm taking the piss there, I'm not. The Chinese government released a musical uh, showcase or musical show called The Wings of Songs. I will put a link to the trailer for it in this podcast. And it is exactly what we said. It's a, it's a musical showcasing of how everything in Xinjiang is pretty great. Well, it's... Um it's a spectacular piece of theatre. I have well, I've I've seen it. It's it's it exists. It it meets the formal criteria of film. I'll give it that. Everybody's a critic now. But actually, it's actually pretty impressive because you watch it and you're like, I mean, I've heard of shamelessness before, but like this is actually impressive. Well, I think nobody's going to be surprised by that. All of us who remember the opening to the Beijing Olympics knows that when the Chinese want to put on a show, they can put on a show. Interesting to see here the Bar Council do this. Now, obviously, because it was targeted against solicitors, it was of interest to them. But we still haven't heard anything from the government on this. And there have been a lot of cases, like, let's say, shall we say, the case of Richard Halloran, who has been enjoying Chinese hospitality for a while at this point, where the government, every time you ask them about it, say, well, there's negotiations and it's at a sensitive time frame. Yeah. Which is horseshit, just be frank on that. Since Mr. Halloran has been over there, 
There have been several attempts to negotiate trade deals. There have been diplomatic outreaches. If Ireland really wanted, we could have made his release an actual condition of some of those deals and some of those initiatives. We haven't, because we didn't. It is pretty much our approach to China. We are horrified of offending them in any way, shape or form. But it's fine, because they're not British, Michael. This is true. We can say anything we like about them, but nobody else. The actual formal statement from the Bar Council was, as you would expect from the Bar Council, the chairperson of the Bar of Ireland, whoever, gave a slightly more, um, shall we say, direct quote when she was talking to the journal. She said that uh, this was China throwing their toys out of the pram in a volatile and aggressive fashion. It was an odd, I thought, an odd, I mean, not necessarily criticising, I just thought it was an odd choice of phrase. And one I would have thought that the Chinese would find particularly offensive, actually portraying them as sort of impulsive and childish as if they were having just a hysterical hissy fit of you know where they weren't getting their own way and they were throwing a paddy about it it's just almost deliberately provocatively offensive and being a a lawyer and being rather a senior lawyer and she's a woman i'm sure who chooses her words with a degree of care yeah these people are usually very careful what they say however they may sense that there could be issues more broadly, if this sort of thing becomes common. And let's say, Michael, there's some sort of international order in which countries are encouraged to personally sanction members of the legal sector if they don't like the work they do. Mm -hmm. It may be that the Bar Council, Michael, has a bit of foresight about this, and the Irish government doesn't. Well, I'm perfectly willing to concede that there may be somebody out there that has more foresight than the Irish government. In fact, I'm praying to God that there is. LGBTI education, as Leo referred to it. There's a little bit of consternation about this now, because there is a new Catholic sex education package having been put forward. Now, my understanding is that the schools will be able to pick or reject that as they see fit. There's no obligation upon them to teach to it. But what I thought was interesting is Leo Varadkar's response to it. He said that the schools must follow the government policy and teach LGBTI plus issues. And apparently this is Catholic uh, education thing. And it says things like sex is a gift from God. You know, Michael, it may position, shall we say, heterosexual relationships as the preferred form of relationship. Right. But what I thought was particularly interesting is why he said they should do it. He said they should do it because having LGBTI plus relationships in all sex education programs was included in the program for government and the cabinet was united on the issue. To which I would say, who gives a shit what's in the program for government? There are policies and there are laws and there's legislation and there's regulations those can be binding. Those can actually influence things. The program for government is a PR document. I don't want to get into the the, the particulars of the uh, particularly of the uh, the substance of what is to be taught, not to be taught. But just to be very tedious, just want to read very quickly three paragraphs <coughs> that people might find familiar, and we can call them four, three, two. And the first one says, the state acknowledges that the primary natural educator of the child is the family and guarantees to respect the inalienable right and duty of parents to provide according to their means for the religious and moral, intellectual and physical and social education of their children. Parents shall be free to provide their education in their homes or in private schools or in schools recognized by the state. The state shall not oblige parents in violation of their conscience and lawful preference to send children to schools established by the state to any particular type of school designated by the state. So you can have whatever the hell you like, Gary, in the programme for government, but which, as you say, is, let's face it, programmes for government, they are writ on water. Sometimes they come through in part. Many times they come through hardly at all. But we also have a thing called the Constitution, and I know that there are some of us who feel that in the last year of this pandemic, that the Constitution has become rather than a, a source of law, more a decoration to put up on the wall and admire and think, wouldn't that be a lovely thing to actually have? While, as regards again the pandemic, you could argue that in, there are lots of circumscriptions about the level to which right, certain kinds of rights pertain or not because of public good and public safety and all that. The protections guaranteed to the parents regarding education 
are amongst the strongest and most explicit in the Constitution. And the idea that they can just come along and say, well, we have decided that this is what is right and this is what we're going to, your children are going to be taught and that this has, and you, that, that parents should just lie down and accept this because they have no choice. It's just, it's a breathtaking level of fucking arrogance that even from this crowd, Gary, is really quite impressive. Yeah, I, I think I would follow with you on that. It's less about the actual idea of sex education or the various contents that I think is interesting here. It's this insistence that, no, this has to be taught this way. And then to back it up, not pointing to legislation or the constitution or regulations or anything, but the program for government, which is a document that doesn't even impact on the lives of most members of the cabinet. As you said, Michael, it sometimes gets true. And it might be shocking, but it's not the place of schools or any other entity to dedicate themselves to only abiding by the programme for government. Also, we're talking here about a discussion which is going to, some of it will involve, some of it's going to involve moral opinions about the nation, the nature of the purpose for human beings, right and wrong action, moral, what is moral and immoral, what is just and unjust. Some of it is going to be about practical things, about how do you achieve certain kinds of practical outcomes. For example, uh, there's been a great debate for many years about what's the best way of ensuring that people don't become pregnant before marriage, don't become pregnant when they don't, when they're not planning to do so. How do you stop teenagers having sex too early? How do you delay those choices? How do you give them the power to say no? All those kinds of things. But Gary, in the midst of all this, particularly when we consider this wonderful acronym LGBTI, an acronym which, as you know, has is becoming increasingly a contentious and contended acronym, even within what you could call euphemistically the gay community. It is to pretend that there is unanimity, that there is agreement about certain things, that there simply isn't. And I, I again, we don't have to go into the details of the particulars, but we know that there are going to be issues around sexuality and about gender, which will be considered, which will be part of this, which are far from settled, are far from agreed upon. And even, even in the liberalist enclaves of Dublin 2, 4 and 6, there are going to be people who will have problems with some of the constructions that are going to be put on by governments. And by legislation, we've already seen in this state. Well, if there's disagreement there, the notion that people operating within a completely different moral framework regarding the prop, what is proper and what is right for the living, for the good life, and they should simply accept that this is what their children are going to be taught, that's nonsense. You can teach people biology, you can teach people science in that hard sort of defined sense. But the idea that, there's, that it is the function of the state to get into telling people, I mean, is it, it's almost like a form of, a prescriptive form of ethics or a prescriptive form of moral philosophy. This is the, this is the philosophy endorsed by the state. You see, that's the kind of thing which pushes people like me into, say, into saying things which you feel are extreme, which is saying that we are now gone to a, a quasi-totalitarian ideological approach to certain things. Because it's simply not the function of people to get, for of states to get involved in that kind of prescription. They have no competence in it. Roisin Shorthall was um, talking about this as well. And she said something, this was in the, where Leo made his comments. And she said, uh, sex education needs to be fact-based. And yeah. facts, Michael, well, she didn't say Michael, obviously, because you're not that close to her. Facts do no, not, not have anymore. an ethos. Which... And I've, I, this is something I've noted, and you see it, just like people for profit will say, they will talk about the need to have secular sex education and present sex education, as it is now commonly seen, as secular. That's all it is. It has no ideological content. It is free from all things. But it might surprise you, Michael, to realize that there have been other entities throughout time which have also been a-religious and have held deeply different views on matters of human sexuality, even without any religious influence. Almost as if there is an ideological content here that reflects dominant cultural norms. 
or at least cult or, or Gary, I would say cultural norms which aspire to be dominant. I don't necessarily know that the cultural norms that these people are talking about are in fact at, as of yet the dominant cultural norms of this society, but they would aspire that they should be. The this is as this is and this has been for a long time. This is the usual. It's a it's a three card trick job where they pass off what we would have once called a liberal moral worldview or progressive moral worldview as being fundamentally neutral. That this is a, this is the neutral. We strip away all ideological, uh, philosophical, or cultural context. It's just the facts, ma'am. That's all we want. Just the facts. Well, Gary. If if we get into the area of gender, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see them come up with a facts, ma'am, just the facts discussion to the nature of gender and, and the nature of sex. Just not of not of the having it, but the being it in Irish schools. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? A fact-based approach to sex and gender. But I don't think we're going to get that, Gary. I don't have a problem with sex education as general. The problem I have found is that the more I read the material that is being prepared in relation to these policies, and the more I look into the people involved in them, on the NGO side of things particularly, the more there is just a deep discomfort with the idea of these people. Like, if I had children, I would not want these people near them. But Gary, do you not think that what first the first thing to think is to just that, word, that phrase, it's of sex education. I think when you talk, you say sex education, the, the, the automatic reaction of most people would be, well, what's wrong with sex education? That seems like a reasonable thing for schools to be involved in because it, it gives the sense of you're just talking to people about the facts. And that may have been at one stage what it was and that, that it may have been regarded as being at the time, at some time in different here or in other places as being an, uh, a dangerous thing and you know, something that we, the school shouldn't be doing. There is a, a story told apocryphally, I don't know if it, I say apocryphally, it may even be true, that at one stage there was a text, a biology textbook in use in Ireland, which listed, um, which was doing the biology, human, human reproduction. And one of the requirements for a pregnancy to occur was marriage. No, I, I never, I, I don't know if I really believed that that was actually true, but it may have been. In fact, somebody felt that that edit was necessary. But we're not talking about teaching uh, simply about human reproduction here anymore. That's not, that's not the issue or the context. No, it's, it's, it's gone in a very weird direction, a lot of this stuff. And as you said, the idea of sex education, I can remember the sex education I received in schools, but that is not what is being proposed here. These are wide-ranging, wide-ranging programs that go far more than sex and sexuality. And I don't, but it's it's still an area I don't particularly like talking about, partially because I just have a certain feeling about the area. Part of my objection to this as well is the pretense that what they're doing is something which is simple and cut and dried and obvious and, like you say, fact-based. I'm a great believer in facts, but let's face it, the, everybody, we like, all like to kick the postmodernists around these days, but the, there was a fundamental truth in the observation that the problem with facts is that we never look at all the facts we only choose a selection of facts, and we all choose our own selection of facts. And with the, of the careful with with careful selection, you can make your facts prove a lot of things that somebody else's selection of facts might not prove. So the idea that facts in themselves, we are our choice of facts is going to be influenced by the values, and we're going to have a hierarchy of the importance that we give to different facts, and we're going to have a hierarchy of outcomes, of what outcomes are more important to treat, to achieve than other outcomes. So the notion that there's some kind of weird, not weird, but some bland neutrality that we could achieve with just the facts is either naive or disingenuous at best. No, I mean, I, I think the other issue here is that it is, if you tell people certain things are true when they're children, you have a fairly high chance that you'll get that them to stick with them for years. And that's simply an unavoidable fact. 
especially if those truths are then reinforced by the wider society. But it's not a case of people, in many cases, deliberately trying to do these things. That is just how children learn. It's it's a part of growing up. You'll take in the cultural values around you. And if that's the case, and, and that is necessary, I would rather a situation in which parents are able to individually choose which uh, things they would like their children encultured into, rather than the state being able to pick one thing and enculture everyone into it. And you could say that on, on the former, you could have situations where some people will miss out certain things in their education. Absolutely. But there is far less scope for things to go horrifically wrong than there is with a state which has been given the power to, shall we say, uh, indoctrinate people into certain truths. That just hasn't gone well it hasn't. It, I mean, that's uh, ironically. I mean, one of the things we like to do with, we, we, in the EBI is we like to work on the uh, uh, expanding the understanding within the wider population of economics. And you'd think that one of the basic things you'd like to see is, from our perspective, of more and more people doing economics in schools. And yet, part of me is actually a bit resistant to the idea because I suspect. That if we teach economics, we'll end up teaching the kind of economics that I think will be actually ultimately very damaging to both the people and to the economy, because they'll get to choose what economics we teach, and that's why history is always a is always a, a, a tricky subject in Ireland, in the way that physics or accountancy isn't, because again, it's a question of opinion, it's a question of selecting which facts and which values and are and which hierarchies you're, you 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 want to promote, but just to I suppose the, the, the last, my last point, my observation on this is we hear a lot of talk in this context about this is yet another example that we, we still haven't finished the fight for the separation of church and state. We have to have a separation of church and state. Now, you know what, maybe it wasn't a misunderstanding once upon a time in Ireland, but we certainly have reached the point now, Gary, where these people are blatantly ignoring the historical context in which the notion of separation of church and state first comes in, say, places like in, in the United States, where you have the constitution guarantees that the state shall not what is endow or establish any religion. The separation of church and state is there to protect the, primarily was to protect the church, not to protect the state. It is to protect church or churches or more I suppose, practically speaking, believers of all sorts of shapes and types and varieties from the imposition from the state of a value system or set of beliefs that were not consonant with theirs. And it seems to me that if we're talking about this is a perfect example of a terrible failure of the, of the, the, separate, of the failure to separate the church and the state. The state is is over, way overstepping its lines here, and the, it is. It, it, this is where the the church needs to be protected, and where people who are believers and people who, not just and, and Gary, you don't have to be a believer. By the way, to take your point that you made earlier, you don't have to be a religious person not to share the values about sexuality or their the beliefs about sexuality that these people do. You don't have to be religious. Uh, so, and your conscience rights as a parent have, have to be respected. There are going to be limits to this, I suppose. And there are certainly, the, I, we, we will hear about Catholic schools and indoctrination and brainwashing. Well, geez, I don't know how those stories still get printed with a straight face, Gary, when we have seen in recent years the capacity for Irish Catholic schools to indoctrinate their students. If they are doing it, Gary, they are doing it very, very badly indeed. One of the reasons I don't like to talk about this issue is that the core of a lot of my politics is just a desire to be left alone. But you, are, you learn pretty young that in order to be left alone, you actually need to get involved. But as the state has grown larger and as more and more activity has become politicised, and there are absolutely NGOs who look at programs like this and look at the creation of course syllabuses as a way to push for particular ideological or doctrinal positions. 
But the more that happens and the more it becomes acceptable to politicize these things, the more areas I end up being involved in and talking about and having to deal with that I just fundamentally don't want to be involved with. Like, I don't want to have to talk about or care about sex education in schools. Yeah. Fundamentally, I just I just think that should be up to parents and it shouldn't be political. It should be depoliticized. It should be a matter for individual parents to come to matters with. And we've seen it across society. So much things have become highly political. And I think it's actually quite harmful for people. Like even sport, when I talk to people, they talk about like, we just want to watch sport without politics. It doesn't need to be political. But if it becomes political and then you don't get involved, well, it continues becoming more and more political, but just in one direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you arrive and you arrive to at, at your club or whatever you're, and they're doing something different. You say, "Well, why are you doing this?" And they say, "Oh, well, there was a meeting, and it's been changed. You didn't go to the meeting, so you didn't have a chance. You didn't get to oppose it. You have to go to the. You have to turn up, unfortunately." But it's like you have no interest in this. And at a, at a most basic level, you have to ask the question is, is this something I feel it would be right for me if I met friends of mine with children? Do I think it's a, it is a, a, a reasonable or con thing for me to tell them how they should be bringing their, their kids up and what they should be teaching them? And if that's not a reasonable thing for me to be doing, well, then it's certainly not a reasonable thing for the state to be doing. If the reaction, if you put yourself in that position on, a, on any subject and your position, you think about it and say, no, that's none of my bloody business. Well, then you can carry that all the way up to the top and say, well, then that's none of the state's bloody business either. And they should just, they, 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 they need to, to keep their nose out. Again, as we say, tying, tying up. Yeah, there is an ideological element to a lot of the NGOs who get involved. I would also suggest, Gary, maybe more cynically, that there's also business here. Mm. This is very good business for somebody because somebody will have to create this content. Someone will have to mod create the modules. Someone will also have to oversee it, evolve it, check on it. This is going to be, this will be a business for someone. And someone will, this will justify some other, some NGO or some new NGOs will come into existence in order to create and to support this system. So I, I'm, while I don't doubt that there are ideological forces driving this as well, there are also practical things. This is very good business for somebody. Almost assuredly. Although having said that, almost all of their business will come from state funding. Oh yeah, it, 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 it always it will be the taxpayer. It will be the taxpayer who will be paying for this, even if the taxpayer thinks it's the work of the devil. That's tough nuggies for the taxpayer. Anyway, we will be back on Monday. I, I don't know why I paused there. By now, I should know the days that we appear on. I suppose maybe you were wondering it being a bank holiday weekend. The day the show appears on is not one of the mysteries of the show. The time <laughs> the show will get uploaded at—that is a mystery. No one, not even I, know that. But the day is pretty consistent. The time and the the reason the thing is up at all, that's a mystery. But other than that, yes. So we shall say, ta-ta, mind yourselves, wash your hands and stay out of the cinemas until Sunday. And we'll talk to you then. All the best. <laughs>